Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 54, for February 14, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. In the 10 populous Arab countries in which together 900,000 indigenous Jews once lived, grandparents in most neighborhoods have memories of Jewish neighbors. And children today, teenagers and so on, are more curious than they might have been in the past to learn about those vestiges, resurrect them, and reconnect with the offspring of these lost friends and neighbors. Arab cultivation of anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist discourse was driven by top-down political expediency as much as by outside-in and bottom-up societal influences. Anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism were causes around which Arab leaders could rally across difference across differences of ideology or religion or so on. And it makes me wonder, to what extent today is the outreach that we observe by Arab leaders, by Arab elites toward Israel, toward Jews, driven by the same regime security concerns, the same desire to leverage openness to Israel and Jews on behalf of better ties to Washington? That was Joseph Browdy and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes speaking at a Washington Institute policy forum earlier this week. They discussed issues raised by Joseph's new report, Reclamation, a Cultural Policy for Arab-Israeli Partnership, which documents opportunities for reclaiming cultural space to advance acceptance among Arabs and Israelis beyond the common U.S. focus on security and economic issues. You can find the report at WashingtonInstitute.org reclamation. We'll hear their full remarks after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. Joseph Browdy, whom you'll hear first, is an expert on the nexus of culture and politics in Arab societies. He's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a senior advisor to the Al-Mesbar Center for Studies and Research in Dubai. He's the author of the new report, Reclamation, a Cultural Policy for Arab-Israeli Partnership, which you can read at washingtoninstitute.org slash reclamation. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes is a senior fellow in the Brookings Institution's Center for Middle East Policy, She served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs in the administration of President Barack Obama. I'll try to briefly describe the main points uh, of the book. The book is concerned with uh, Arab public discussions and culture in these societies, and it begins with the premise that culture is fluid and not static, uh, and that proactive efforts to improve Uh, culture for the benefit of those who are immersed in it uh, have the potential to succeed. Um, It also adopts the view that the present-day depths of anti-Semitism and rejectionism in so much of the region, certainly while rooted uh, in ancient prejudice, um, are also in part a modern phenomenon that is in part uh, a reflection and a result of Western anti-Semitic impositions that were imported into the region uh, for a variety of reasons by locals who admired them. 
but that there is what to reclaim. There are traditions of tolerance, traditions of cooperation and coexistence uh, that are remembered to this day. Uh, and in, certainly in the 10 populous Arab countries in which together 900,000 indigenous Jews once lived, uh, grandparents uh, in most neighborhoods have memories of Jewish neighbors. Uh, and children today, teenagers and so on, are more curious than they might have been in the past to learn about those vestiges, resurrect them, and reconnect with the offspring of these uh, lost friends and neighbors. Um, so there is what to build on, and it's important to figure out how to do so, because um, as I don't think is a widely, uh, a really controversial thing to say, this uh, culture of anti-Semitism and rejectionism, while undoubtedly uh, exacerbated by the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and by that conflict as narrated to Arab publics, um, is not purely a function of that conflict. It is also a multi-generational legacy of indoctrination through schools, religious institutions, uh, and educational institutions. And this powerful machinery, which to a significant degree continues to put out such material, uh, needs to begin to uh, reform. And uh, there needs to be a different message. And the question of how to get there uh, is an important one. And it's important because without a culture supportive of a settlement, uh, it is difficult for diplomats who otherwise get along very well behind closed doors to reach one that they can sell to their own populations. And so the book is concerned with how to roll back uh, that inculcation. Uh, it argues that there is an, a relatively new opportunity to begin to do so thanks to three new trends, relatively new trends. The first is the widely touted uh, convergence of interests among some Arab powers in the state of Israel, which has, um, uh, as a result of which, there has been some expansion, a modest expansion of the public space in which supporters of a peace bet between peoples uh, can express their ideas. And it has also netted a slight reduction um, in the uh, space allotted to the traditional anti-Semitic uh, content. Um, so there is this top-down trend of uh, modest encouragement for a change in tone with respect to discussions of Israel, and we've seen it in uh, religious institutions to some degree and schools to a limited degree and uh, media also to a modest degree, but perhaps a little bit even more than other institutions. The second, if that would be called a top-down trend, is a bottom-up phenomenon. And in some ways, it's an even more exciting one that knows no political boundaries. So you have grassroots voices, particularly young people, in nearly every Arab country. 
who are openly and boldly expressing their desire for a peace between peoples. They're affected by the globalization of culture in their environments through which they've learned things they never knew through school uh, about Jews and Israel. Uh, they are also influenced by a sense that rejectionist politics have failed and it's time to try something new in Libya, in Iraq, uh, and so on. Um, and they're attempting quite directly through social media and other uh, channels to connect with Israelis and Jews. And this is a, uh, a discernible trend in nearly every Arab country, not just those Sunni autocracies that are tacitly engaging Israel, but also in uh, war-torn Libya, in democratic Tunisia, where no... Um, uh, one ruler monopolizes the public discussion, and even uh, in Shiite-majority Iraq, uh, where certainly Sunni power calculations are not uh, the prevailing um, uh, trend. The third new advantage to any effort at reclamation is coming from the outside in, and that is uh, that Israeli actors, as well as some American Jewish and other uh, actors outside the region are developing their own abilities to engage Arab public discussions themselves. They're learning the language, they're uh, devising their own sorts of media outreach, they're breaching historic, historical barriers of communication and movement, uh, and they're building their own audiences. And so between the top-down, the bottom-up, and the outside-in trends, they somehow Re seem to reinforce each other um, in the infosphere and create a sense of momentum. At the same time, there are any number of reasons to, uh, to be pessimistic. Uh, first of all, there are countercurrents in the region. For example, the same uh, convergence uh, the same threat of Iran proxy militias and jihadist groups that has affected a convergence of interests between some Sunni Arab powers and Israel has also um, caused a sectarian and an intensification of sectarian sentiment, um, which creates a new mutation of anti-Semitism, whereby, for example, um, uh, Sunni Islamist and uh, sort of jingoistic voices are tarring uh, Shiism as a Jewish contrivance and claiming that Iran and Israel are secret allies, and whereby Iran and its uh, media properties in Arabic, which are quite formidable, uh, seeks to tar Sunni Arab leaders as stooges for their uh, any indication of uh, engagement with Israelis and Jews. Um, Meanwhile, the sort of forward-looking voices within Arab establishments are themselves embattled, uh, and the rejectionist trend remains the most powerful one, and it has the ability to intimidate and severely curtail the expression uh, of a new outlook. As a result, it's hard to see um, an overcoming of these obstacles without um, American leadership. I would argue that 
the opportunity to build on the forward trends uh, and address the obstacles <clears throat> lies in the hands of the United States. It needs to engage its Arab allies in a more serious discussion about cultural issues with respect to the narration of Israel and relations with Jews. Um, and it can do so <clears throat> if it wants to because it has greater standing than in the past. There is greater anxiety and concern about America's commitment to engage the region. And so there, is, there are new types of incentives and opportunities to press for uh, a more substantial change in discourse. If the United States adopts reclamation as a, an interim strategic priority, <clears throat> it can negotiate a new space for this type of work, and it can help its Arab allies actually implement the work. Because um, once uh, a given Arab power or authority says, okay, we'll do this, what's the next step? Uh, it's not necessarily easy for them to do it all by themselves, because they may lack uh, a foundation of knowledge and information to be purveyed. Uh, there's a question of who will do this and how and what sorts of partnerships are necessary to retool curricula uh, and uh, change the nature of messaging. So a role uh, for Israel, for the United States and others in partnering with Arab actors uh, would be essential too. You've got to open the space for it and then you have to actually do it. Um, and in the meantime, the U.S. can also uh, empower and strengthen those grassroots voices that have been braving and calling for peace between peoples without establishment cover or support. And finally, there are techniques which this monograph describes to uh, degrade uh, the media outlets and other mouthpieces of Iran in the Arabic language uh, and of other belligerent uh, state and non-state actors that are uh, themselves an irritant and an obstacle to this effort. That was Joseph Browdy. And now, Tamara Kaufman Wittes. This is a really refreshing monograph, and I commend it to all of you. It's nuanced and it's thoughtful on a question that, while it might not seem on the face of it to have immediate policy relevance, um, it's deeply important. I, I think too often those of us who work on foreign policy in a day-to-day -day way focus a lot, perhaps too much, on what is. We start by defining what our constraints are, and then we seek to have impact within our constraints. Um, and what Joseph has done here is explore a possibility, a potential for a relationship between Arabs and Israelis that looks very different from the one we have today, something that um, is not, it, it's thinking that is not bounded by the constraints of the moment. And that possibility may seem to you, even after you read through his argument, to be a, a faint possibility. It might feel uh, like a gossamer curtain, sort of beautiful and shimmering, but very hard to grasp. Um, and yet, I think it's important for those of us who work on policy day to day to grapple with arguments like that. Because 
Without a sense of possibility, we create our own self-fulfilling prophecies of cynicism, perhaps especially about the Arab-Israeli conflict and perhaps especially at this juncture of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And to me, that makes Joseph's illustration of possibility in this book all the more enticing, all the more worthy of study. I think that the work you've done in this uh, in this piece is important for another reason, which is that all too often, both American audiences and Israeli audiences, and any of us who do public speaking on this topic know this very well, um, tend to see and treat the Arab world as a monolith. And tend to see the Arab street, a phrase I detest, as an undifferentiated mass. Um, sometimes the Arab world, the Arab street are object. Sometimes they are subject. Sometimes they're agents. Sometimes they're dupes. But they're never complicated, and they're all the same thing. And this false understanding by outsiders of the Arab world's supposed homogeneity is, of course, matched and reinforced by the repression of Arab governments and the flattening of discourse in the Arab world that results from that repression, as well as by the history and the legacy of pan-Arab, pan-Islamic ideologies in regional discourse that create this false sense of homogeneity. And Joseph's book is a wonderful antidote to all of that. It's detailed, it's nuanced, it's well-researched, and it's a discussion that reveals this heterogeneity of thought in Arab societies about Jews and about Israel that has always been there. It's always existed beneath this veneer of uniformity and ideological solidarity. And so even though the views on which he pins his hopes remain, as he's very clear to say, disadvantaged, and marginalized, it is really important to remember that they're there. Just as these voices, marginalized though they may be, serve to combat the dehumanization of Jews and Israelis in the eyes of Arabs, so our better perception and understanding of them helps to combat the dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims that is all too common, both here in the United States and in Israeli political discourse. So reflecting on Joseph's argument and the evidence that he brings to bear, I find myself struck by the, the discipline I think he brings to the claim he's making. It's ultimately a modest claim, and I applaud the discipline. He writes, some view the goal of an Arab cultural sea change as unrealistic. They can be forgiving, for doubting prospects to end Arab anti-Semitism in our time. But the sea change intended here is more discreet, he writes. It means supplanting the present imbalance by which rejectionists intimidate and overwhelm the Arab peace camp in most institutions of society and state with a more advantageous competitive environment in which rejectionists have lost the standing to coerce while the peace camp has won the sympathy and space to act. So really, the claim he's making is that there is an opportunity to create a possibility of change. And uh, there's a whole chapter in this book about Morocco and the Moroccan case of its unique interactions with Israel and with Jews. I think that it's a fascinating example and worth delving into. 
but I do think in many ways it's an aberration. And you acknowledge several of the ways in which particularly the choices of the Moroccan monarch um, were unique in the Arab world. Um, but I also think that Morocco has a unique history and legacy, cultural legacy in the relationship between Arabs and Jews because its Jewish population was so large, relatively speaking, in the Arab world. And it also has a different history in its relationship with the West and the legacy of colonialism that is unique in the Arab world. Um, and I think both of those help to explain the possibility, the space that allowed the Moroccan king to make the choices that he made. So all of this just to give you a, a little bit of color in how, how careful, how uh, nuanced this argument is. And this careful argument leaves me with three big questions. The first is, is the possibility that Joseph is laying out here a real opportunity? Or is it an artifact of an historical moment that might already be passing us by? For example, Joseph notes that space was created for a more diverse discourse about Jews and Israel in some Arab societies after 9-11, as leaders worked to shift from transnational ideologies and in Saudi Arabia, he, he gives an example away from Islamism toward a more inclusive national identity as a basis for social cohesion, as a basis for state legitimacy. So that's exciting and interesting. But how then should we understand the prospects for survival of such a discourse, a diverse discourse about Jews in Israel, as many Arab leaders are pivoting back to jingoism, to militarism, to repression of domestic public discourse. Maybe that space is already going away. Likewise, the curiosity, even the romanticization that has emerged in some quarters, especially in Iraq, in Lebanon, a little bit in Egypt, about the Jews who left. This is a, a topic covered wonderfully in this book. It's partly a yearning for a more open, diverse, tolerant society, which is itself a yearning that is a contrast to a rejection of the very rigid constructs of contemporary sectarian politics in a place like Lebanon or Iraq, or, and a, a rejection of the zero-sum nature of authoritarian politics in a place like Egypt. So, in some ways, it, it's not that unlike what you describe, Joseph, about the 1940s and 1950s, which is it's using a discourse about Jews in Israel as a proxy for other issues in society and as a means to more local ends. And so that, that leaves me with this question, is it a real opportunity or is it a historical moment that could pass quickly? Second question is about external actors. Um, the United States and the American Jewish community and American Jewish organizations, which as you illustrate, have played a very important role over the years in serving as a, as a vector for engagement <clears throat> on these issues. And indeed, their engagement seems focused and fruitful in encouraging the kinds of discourse that you're describing. Can they actually engage effectively in this moment in a way that maximizes the potential and the possibility that you see. If there's an opportunity, really, are we poised to seize it here in the United States? 
That's the question. When I think, and this draws in part on my experience working in the organized Jewish community at the very beginning of my career, when I think about the, the phases of American Jewish and Israeli engagement with the Arab world over Jews, I think about it in, in a few phases. The first focus in the years immediately following the founding of, of Israel was about the welfare and emigration of Jews in Arab lands, as we called them in the organized community. Um, that was a portfolio, a policy portfolio, Jews in Arab lands. Then there was a phase around the time of the end of the Cold War, the launching of the Madrid process, the Oslo process, that was focused on formal diplomatic engagement, both with the Israeli government and with American Jews. So, for example, when Henry Siegman and Senator Joe Lieberman went off to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia in a very public way to say, look, we are Jews visiting the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that was, that was a sort of separate phase. It was very focused on formal recognition. And today we have a phase that I think you describe very well, including in your opening remarks today, that's much more focused on a shared agenda between American Jewish organizations, the Israeli government, and uh, Arab governments focused on American foreign policy toward the Middle East. It's very instrumental. And it creates its own reaction in the context of a very polarized American politics and in the context of a pretty robust debate in the United States about our role in the Middle East and what it should be. And so it strikes me that there's a, it's a very fraught prospect to do what you do here and recommend a much more robust range of American engagement on this issue because it's coming in a context where there's a lot of mutual grievance between governments in the region and government and this government here at home. And just in practical terms, a micro example drawn from your analysis, you, you make a wonderful point about American work to foster free trade agreements in the Middle East and the role of economic globalization in helping open Arab states to Israel, to businessmen who are coming in with Israeli visas in their passports, to Israeli products or products that are part Israeli. Um, and America's leadership of the globalization effort in the 19, 1990s and 2000s had a lot to do with pushing this forward. The fact that President George W. Bush was um, making free trade agreements with, well, Jordan, Morocco, UAE, Bahrain, Oman, I think. Um, today we have an American public that is deeply rethinking the value of globalization, <laughs> um, the benefits of American leadership of that liberal international order, if I can use that phrase. We're in a much more protectionist United States of America in terms of our relationships with the rest of the world. So can the United States successfully pursue the work that you're describing? in this changed environment here at home. And then finally, I'm left with the question of how to understand a relationship that you delve into throughout the book between the relationship between culture and society and political power. The book does a really great job of laying out how in earlier eras, Arab cultivation of anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist discourse was driven by top-down political expediency 
as much as by outside-in and bottom-up societal influences. Anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism were causes around which Arab leaders could rally across difference, across differences of ideology or uh, religion or so on. Um, and it makes me wonder to what extent today is the outreach that we observe by Arab leaders, by Arab elites toward Israel, toward Jews, driven by the same regime security concerns, the same desire to leverage openness to Israel and Jews on behalf of better ties to Washington. <clears throat> I think you raise these issues throughout the book. You're not ignoring them at all. But I think it, these are really thorny questions and important for us to answer. To the extent that it is political expediency that's driving this willingness of Arab states to tolerate the diversity of cultural discourse that Joseph is describing and on which he's, he's pinning this opportunity, then I think it's important to note, to take note of the lessons of history. And I'll, I'll conclude just by sharing an anecdote that Joseph lays out in the book that really struck me hard. This is in 2010, not very long ago. And in the context of talking about the rise of pan-Arab satellite television, you give this example of the Saudi-owned NBC satellite channel, which put together a 30-episode historical epic about a series of purported Jewish conspiracies to bring down the Ottoman Empire. Um, so it, among other things, it's glorifying the Turks, which is amusing. Um, NBC paid Qatar's Echo Media to produce the series. And NBC, the Saudi-owned channel, granted Hezbollah's satellite channel, Al Manar, the rights to re-air the series. So there are no angels in this story, right? You have this unholy alliance of sworn adversaries behind the shared goal of scapegoating and demonizing Jews. And to me, it is a really important cautionary tale. Um, because political expediency can be expedient. Uh, a lesson that our regional partners learned in December when President Trump made an expedient decision about the future of American forces in Syria. And so I think that seizing the possibility that Joseph lays out is something that requires a commitment to principle, a sustenance of effort, uh, a persistence over time that is hard to imagine for the United States in general, hard for our current foreign policy moment, and particularly hard in an environment where the region and our regional governmental partners are changing so quickly as they deal with a fast-changing region, and we ourselves are having a debate about how we want to relate to that fast-changing region. So all of that is not to say that we should ignore this possibility. Far from it. I really think we need to think about it. And I am grateful to you for putting it on the table. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank <laughs> you.